Welcome, everyone. Today, our guest is Dr. David Weissman, PhD research bioscientist, uh, pharmacy, pharmacology, immunology, experimental pathology. He's been working in the field since 1996, runs his own research and development uh, organization for drug device and biological consulting. He has focused on COVID-19 for the last three years, and his uh, data analyses have... Um, well, they've been uh, sort of reconsidering some of the uh, some of the canon that's out there, and we want to talk to him. He's got some grave concerns, and we want to hear him out. Uh, so Dr. Kelly, of course, is here as always, and we are out on the Restream. Uh, we are also at Rumble with the Rants. I see you guys piling in there. And, of course, we are on Twitter Spaces where you can, you can listen along. I don't think I'll be taking calls today, but uh, I'll let you know certainly if there is that opportunity. We will be in here, Susan, tomorrow, I believe, taking calls. Yes. Uh, so yeah. we will... No, nope. we have Ram and uh, uh, Bruce. Well, there may be some calls on that as well. So check it out. We will uh, bring Dr. Kelly and Dr. Weissman in right after this. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Welcome, everyone. As always, we'll have Dr. Kelly Victor in here in just a couple of minutes. But first, uh, again, Dr. Weissman is a PhD research bioscientist. We wanted to hear his thoughts. He's got a few slides for us today as well, which uh, I suspect we will start to get into, dig into when Kelly comes in. So I'm going to bring her in uh, a bit early. But let's uh, welcome Dr. Weissman to the program. Thank you. Weissman, thank you for having thank me. You in here. You bet. Is there any place, before we get on with this, a uh, place you'd like to send people or follow you on Twitter or... Uh, find your website if they want more information. Uh, yeah, I have a website. I think your guys have it, Synechion, uh, S-Y-N-E-C-H-I-O-N.com. I'm also on Trial Site News. Uh, I'm, uh, I guess, a contributor, and you can find me there with a list of all my work, trialsitenews.com. Very Thank good. You. And we have we have Synechion up there right now. Uh, so if, people can, uh, if they have trouble spelling it, it is on the screen, S-Y-N-E-C-H-I-O-N. So when did you start becoming concerned about some of the COVID-19 research? What, what sort of got um, you involved in reconsidering things? Well, I, I, was, I was not really thinking too much about COVID in March of 2020. And then what a family member said I should watch a certain video um, with a doctor. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say his name. What, what, what the rules on doctor's names, uh, Drew? <laughs> it's only the, the medicines are what you can't say. You can say okay, names, so you can't say medicines. <laughs> If the name begins with the letter Z, is that okay? Can I? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I can say I can say Dr. Zelenko. So a family member asked me to you can. watch a, a video with Dr. Zelenko about the work he was doing, and and uh, I, I did it sort of more out of you, you know courtesy to my family member, and uh, but then then I was listening to it and it started to make sense, and I said, wow, he, this guy's got a story with a certain drug beginning with the letter that comes after the letter G. Um, in the alphabet, and and he added zinc to the. Am I, is that okay? That's too much there. Yes. Um, yes. The, the, and um, and and with zinc, and I and I said, wow, there's a story here. I think he's really got something. I was, so I dived in into it, and I said, wow, there is really a story of zinc uh, dysregulation, and and that got me in. 
And then I started looking at clinical trials that, that I could design uh, that using zinc and some other drugs other than that, that particular one, um, such as quercetin and other things, to see if, if we could get something going. And um, long story short, I ended up um, looking at a paper uh, that, that um, got published in the New England Journal of Medicine on, on that uh, drug that we, that, whose name we can't pronounce. Um, and uh, it was the Bullwest study. And it, I was surprised because I was expecting that it wouldn't work. And yet there were signals in the paper that suggested something's going on. And again, a long story short, I got hold of the raw data for that paper and, and literally drew within two minutes of opening the, the Excel file. I figured out what had gone wrong. The authors, the, 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 the workers had, had failed to account for the time it took to ship the drug over, overnight, they thought, to the people in, in, the, in the study. And anyone who's ever ordered anything online knows that overnight shipping does not always mean overnight shipping. So I said, mm -hmm. listen, you've got, to get, you've got to give me the shipping data here. Um, and after about three months and, and dozens of emails, I, I received the data. I plugged it in and I found um, if you gave that drug within three days of, of exposure, um, there was about a 40-something percent reduction, statistically, statistically significant reduction in COVID. And this was one of the two papers that basically, well, the, the really one paper that closed down hydroxychloroquine in, oh, sorry, in, in terms of, in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, of, of the emergency use authorization. Um, this was highly significant. So I, I wrote it up with my co-authors and we, we sent it to the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a, a, a significant error in the study, uh, you know, either retraction worthy or correction worthy. And yet, um, and yet, uh, and, and yet here is evidence that those, that paper was significantly wrong. The whole world had relied on that paper and the New England Journal of Medicine's uh, reason for rejecting it within 18 hours was not on any scientific merit. It was merely because it, they felt it lacked the focus and interest of the readers. And that was about January the 3rd, 2021, a day which saw one of the highest number of deaths in the world overall of COVID, about 8,000 deaths. I think there were about four, three or 4,000 deaths what, in the United what, States. What do, you, what do you surmise happened here? I mean, there's a many, many, you know, sort of historical little vignettes we could run through where, where sort of the behavior of science uh, suddenly became bizarre and tainted in some way that was hard to understand. I, I, I'm just thinking about even the Danish mask study when there was so much excitement about that study. We're finally going to understand if masks are going to work. Turned out to be negative. Nobody would publish it except for Annals of Internal Medicine. That that to me was an astonishing moment. Uh, it was supposed to be in the New England Journal if I understand how that was being laid out at the time. But what what do you think happened to us? Well, I, I, I think I mean, that particular study, I think actually was actually, in, in, in most respects, it was actually a very good study and, and, and well-designed. It was done very quickly under the pandemic conditions. And I think they actually did a fairly good job. I, I don't think that they deliberately conspired in any way to, to rig the data, as, as some people might suggest. I do not think that's the case. I think it was an, an honest mistake that happened. Uh, and honest mistakes do happen in science. But once that paper got, you know, put up right at the, at the pinnacle of whatever was going on in COVID. You remember what was going on with President Trump and, and so on and so forth. It was, it, was, it was a huge thing. And so once someone's out there and they've sort of set their position for themselves, it's very hard for someone to retract from that position just from a sort of personal, you know, you know uh, 
re reputation, if that's the right word, or or uh, or, or a personal um, appearance kind of fashion. And so I think a lot of people dug themselves into holes that they couldn't um, get out of. Um, and, and that's that, that's just one. I mean, we can come up with other answers. I mean, I, I can't. Yeah, it, it's baffling to me. It's still, it's still kind of baffling. I, I there's so many questions that I, I would love to know. For instance, the relative risk of vaccine versus COVID in terms of deleterious outcomes of, of all types. Uh, just like in, in a 25 year old, just take a single age age cohort, 25 year olds. What's the? I still can't figure out what the risk reward is yet, and that seems like a dire, a critically important question. I, I wonder if somebody's asking it and looking into it. I, I, I don't I've, know. I've, asked, I've actually asked that question, <laughs> and it, I, I've asked that question. Um, so at, at the um, at the October 26, twenty twenty one meeting of the FDA's advisory panel, this was to consider the five to eleven year old uh, Pfizer vaccination. FDA did actually do a calculation um, along the lines that you're describing. Um, and, and I think that was, to my knowledge, that was the first time I saw one. Um, I went through it and, and, in fact, there was a lot of criticism from the committee. You know, you should have included this, you should have included natural immunity and so on. You've overestimated this, you've underestimated that and so on. So I went through it and, and I added in, you know, other risks that beyond myocarditis that, that FDA, actually FDA had, fairly represented they they knew it was under under reported in bears so, so they used a higher number much to the chagrin of, of of cdc interestingly but i went in and i've done it now several times for different age groups i haven't done it for 25 year olds but i've done it for you know 5 to 11 and 11 12 to 15 in different ways and i've included other kinds of adverse events like uh, neurological events and severe adverse events so so what it turns out to be the in the FDA's initial analysis, they had approximately a, um, I think it was a five to one uh, benefit over risk, approximately, if my numbers are correct. Um, I, when I calculated, I reversed that to to about twenty to one or even greater in the opposite direction. And obviously, there's how did they get that there. so wrong? How did they get well, that the, so I mean, wrong? Again, the, I've got, I've got, a, I've got, a, I think I've got a paper on that somewhere. Um, uh, one one of the things they did was uh, they didn't they didn't include the, the effect of um, natural immunity for example they didn't include the effect of other severe adverse events that were being reported in VAERS. Uh, whether or not there was causality they they have to assume that there was causality for the purpose of that particular exercise and 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 one of the big things that they I think they calculated wrongly based on the Pfizer data how many cases would be averted uh, based on the, the the actual numbers within the study uh, they they overestimated that by about 2.1 fold if i remember correctly they corrected it later in another version they published um in uh february march time uh, but not at that time so so there are calculations that are available the problem with that drew is that in and this is again speaks to the transparency issue fda now went ahead they published this risk benefit calculation with a formula with a model in a peer review journal and as you well know oftentimes it says you know for more information for a copy of this this and this please write to the author so i wrote to the author who had stated in the paper that they could give us a copy of this model the the, the excel spreadsheet um rather than receive that i was then transferred to a foi for freedom of information person within the fda says no you have to file an foi request to do that I mean, I think that's completely ridiculous. Mm. Um, 
so 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 that so the, the the models are out there uh if someone files an fii for me let's get the model and see what how fda actually did, did it but here's the problem drew it doesn't matter anymore because fda are now no longer even going there they're just using an extrapolative approach their approach to to authorizing the 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 bivalent and we'll talk about whether they're really bivalent a little later but the the their approach to appro- authorizing in the beginning of September the the, the bivalent Omicron uh, BA5 and Wuhan was not to consider any type of risk benefit analysis. It was merely an extrapolative approach. So they had no data. You cannot perform a risk benefit analysis if you have no data. So they're just going to extrapolate from what they what they think they know from other other types of studies. All right, I want to get Kelly in here as fast as possible today. I know you've got some slides for us. We're gonna kind of we're gonna kind of uh, head through. So let's take a quick break, and we'll bring Kelly in with Dr. David Weissman. Want to give the gift that keeps on giving? Genucel skincare keeps everyone on your holiday list looking young and refreshed. And who doesn't need that type of luxury, especially over the holiday season? Genucel has so many products that Susan and I love. Genucel's XV Moisturizer locks in moisturizer on top of the serums, making dry spots a thing of the past, especially great with the colder climate and all the dryness of our skin, right? And with Genucel's Immediate Effect 2 eye cream, you can see the results in as little as 12 hours, guaranteed or your money back. Susan loves Genucel's DFS Vitamin C Serum, the new Deep Firming Serum, as well as the Hyaluronic with C and Lactic Acid which hydrates your skin and makes fine lines a thing of the past while hopefully preventing future wrinkles from forming. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Take advantage of amazing holiday savings by going to genucel.com, and you will get 60% off with a special holiday stocking stuffer when you subscribe to my favorites package at genucel.com slash drew, and all orders are upgraded to free shipping for the rest of the holiday season. We will get it there quickly. Use code Drew at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire order. That is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Drew. Economic turmoil has a lot of people wondering what our government will do next. Will it be more wasteful spending, higher taxes? How do you protect your hard-earned savings? The answer could be gold. Gold is the world's oldest, most proven form of currency. It's there when inflation soars and when other assets go sideways. And that's why Birch Gold is thrilled to introduce a new product that reimagines gold as currency, the gold back. This month, you'll get a free gold back for every $5,000 purchased when you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a precious metals IRA with Birch Gold by December 22nd, Susan's birthday, incidentally. Birch Gold will help you own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered account. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to claim your free info kit on gold and then talk to one of their precious metals specialists. Reminder, I do not give financial advice. This is not financial advice, but you can go to Birch Gold and with every purchase you make before December 22nd, you'll get a free gold back. This is a stocking stuffer just in time for Christmas. Once again, visit birchgold.com slash Drew. Protect your savings with gold today. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv.
There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And let's welcome Dr. Kelly Victory. Kelly, medicine that doesn't boil. Whoops. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> it is important, so we should repeat it. Uh, Dr. Weissman, thanks very much for joining us. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. One thing that was left out in Drew's introduction uh, is that you have a, in addition to your extensive scientific background, you served as one of the lead science, uh, senior scientists at Johnson and Johnson for years. So of all of the experts that we've had on um, these shows, you perhaps have the most in-depth experience uh, with a pharmaceutical manufacturer as well as with the FDA. And I want to bring that to bear in this conversation. So what I'd like to do I, is I was for uh, a few years. I was I, I was I was I was I was I think I was the youngest person to hold to be one of the 66 top research scientists at the time. Um, so I wouldn't say I held it for years because then I left and started my own company. But we've been deeply okay. involved with all the FDA stuff. But thank you for um, thank you for that. <laughs> no, and you haven't. Well, so what I'd like to do is take the liberty of of taking us back up, regardless of what you know, a particular study that somebody knows or how well versed they are in the actual science. I think at this point in the in the you know December 2022, I think we can all acknowledge that this has not gone well. Uh, this entire pandemic response hasn't gone well. The vaccine rollout hasn't gone well. There was, you know, the effectiveness, the safety. There are a lot of problems. So what I want to do is take us back up to fifty thousand feet, and look at. Let's start with where this thing went off the rails from the perspective of the FDA, your previous experience with it, vaccine manufacturer, pharmaceuticals, all of that. And I know you you don't have the, that kind of um, interaction or experience with the CDC, but the CDC is the sister organization to the FDA. So I think that they, they are somewhat joined. The FDA, for you know, people who don't know, has been uh, in existence for well over a century, it was put in place by an act of Congress back in the late 1890s. They initially were tasked with um, assuring the accuracy of labeling. And then sometime in the 1930s, I believe it was, they were tasked with assuring the safety of drugs and therapeutics. Um, and then in sometime in the early 60s, uh, efficacy was added to their mandate. So suffice to say, the FDA is the organization that is tasked with assuring the accuracy, safety, and efficacy of any drugs or therapeutics uh, that are put out to, to the American people. And the CDC, if you go to their website, their, quote, pledge to the American people is to, quote, base every public health decision on the highest quality scientific data that is done openly and honestly. So given those two things, what the FDA's mandate is and what the, the mission statement is of the CDC, from your perspective, where did this thing breach? Where did the erosion of the standards of the FDA and the CDC start? Okay, so uh, that's that's a really uh, 
that's a central question. So I think the first thing that people need to understand is the word safe and effective. And I'm sure everyone's heard it splashed around everywhere. So we need to understand what that means and then what it doesn't mean and what it is thought to mean at current. And then, and then we'll be able to answer your question. So in, in a normal situation, a medical product of, of a, a new drug, uh, let's say, uh, is going to come on the market. The FDA have to assure themselves based on the information that the, the, the drug manufacturer provides and the studies that the FDA have asked them to do, that the drug is both safe and effective, uh, safe and effective as you've um, mentioned in the historical introduction there. Um, because of the under certain conditions, the FDA can lower those standards. Okay, and 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 this is very people don't realise that that's the case. Um, but the standard that is employed for the emergency use authorization, which is a as as, as the name exactly implies, is not that the drug or the new product has to be safe and effective. It has to be it, the word is may be effective. That's a technical term that's used in the in the various documentation. So, so, the F, so the company is not required to go the whole hog and uh, the FDA is not required to insist on, 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 on a much larger range of studies um, that, uh, that would show effectiveness, but merely they have to be a lead based on a number of things that the drug may be effective. So whenever you hear the word safe and effective, that's absolutely not correct. At best, all FDA have done is determine to their standard that the drug may be effective. Okay. Now, in terms of safety, uh, that's that definition is a little harder to sort of get your head around. But rather than use the word safe, the 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 uh, the, doc, the the documents say that FDA have to uh, something like assure themselves or satisfy themselves that they believe that the that the potential and known uh, benefits outweigh the potential and known risks. So that's a slightly different way, different way, version of saying safe. It's not the same thing. So, so that's okay in a pandemic situation, but obviously that has to be backed up with real data and, and any drug, even in a normal situation, um, you know, there's always new data coming out and FDA is always obliged, the company is always obliged to, to update their safety profile based on the best known information currently. So I think one of the, um, one of the main problems is that there was a rush to get this out of there. FDA took a lot of shortcuts we can we we will show a couple of slides in a moment where they where they took some shortcuts and they didn't backfill those things. And to Drew's question uh, earlier, why did this happen? I think people made you know potentially honest mistakes uh, in some cases. Some cases I think more reckless than that. But it's very hard for people to to dig themselves out of those sorts of holes. So I think that we had a perfect storm of things that happened. Plus, you know, we can't ignore the politics. Um, you know, the, the two of the uh, FDA uh, senior people resigned uh, about a year ago, Drs. Gruber and uh, Krauss. They felt there was too much in, 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 um, interference from the CDC or, or the White House, I believe. So there was a perfect storm of lots of things happening. So um, I think that was the, the beginning of the story. And then let's see how it rolls out from there. Well, well thank you for that. And the reason I think that this issue of safe and effective isn't just, you know, verbiage, isn't just terminology or, or you know, uh, because you cannot, that risk benefit calculation that I was talking about in my intro, uh, which everything in medicine boils down to, you can't make a risk benefit calculation if you don't understand the safety, 
and the efficacy components. Those are the two uh, the two factors in, in safe and effective. So if you knew, for example, that a therapy or a drug or an intervention was 100% safe, then you might say, well, I don't really know. It might, may or may not be effective, but it's, uh, you know, what do I have to to risk, you know, if it's a hundred percent risk or safe, there's not one chance in hell that I could be harmed. Yeah, then I will try it. If there's any chance that it's effective, if on the other hand you knew that it was one hundred percent effective, absolutely would stop the bad thing from happening, you might be willing to take more of a safety risk. But if you don't know either ends of that calculation, and it sounds like with these, we really didn't. They didn't know the efficacy of the vaccine and they didn't run the appropriate tests, the appropriate studies, the appropriate, you know, uh, they didn't look at what they needed to look at to prove safety. Then you're really in a bind uh, if you're, you're totally incapable of making an accurate risk benefit analysis. And I think it, it's important to add into the component that you know, there was such a huge, and you know, the funding that went into this huge public relations, you know, peer pressure campaign to, to convince people, oh, wait, you, you do it for the benefit of your community because we'll stop transmission. And, and we know that, the, you know, that the studies were never designed to, 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 uh, to, to um, detect whether or not the vaccines reduce transmission. Right. Sorry. So, so- I was going to yeah. say, so, so let's, so, so absolutely. So let, let's get now a little bit, you know, we, we get to maybe down to 30,000 feet and start talking about these specific things that we are referencing as vaccines. And first of all, I think I could say, you know, with, with surety that none of the three of us are anti-vaccine, um, anything, but I have, I personally have have spoken and written prolifically in my career about the importance of vaccination. I'm more vaccinated than the average individual because of where I've chosen to travel and what I've done for a living. But I think that um, the idea that these we are calling them vaccines when they in fact are, you know, more appropriately uh, should be termed gene therapy. And I want to talk about why that's important. Again, this is not just terminology because it really gets to the heart of what the FDA's protocols are in managing vaccines versus managing something that would as that had it been called a gene therapy. So talk us through that from the FDA's, how do those two classes of therapeutics differ in terms of the way the FDA would normally approach them? Okay, so, you know, there's there's many different classifications of medical products and and, and, uh, in, in some of the writings of Moderna, in the SEC filing, of, uh, I think two, one of the filings in 2020, in, do, in documents that, that Pfizer, uh, that BioNTech had, had written, they were fully expecting that these products would be regulated as gene therapy products. And, and FDA has a definition of what that means. Uh, they don't have to stick to it, but the definition, you know, broadly includes the delivery of nucleic acids, which is, you know, RNA stands for ribonucleic acid. So RNA is definitely a nucleic acid. I don't think anyone is going to challenge that. So they fully expected these things to be regulated as gene therapy products. Um, there, there is a there is a guidance document that FDA has that spells out what what that regulation means that as a guidance, and that means potentially that that the FDA is concerned of a number of gene kinds of uh, uh, anomalies that could occur as a result of the delivery of this product, 
And that could lead to things such as cancers, autoimmune disease, neurologic and hematologic disease. And, and, and for that reason, the part of that guidance insists uh, that, that the companies would, be, would, would need to do at least a five to 15 year follow up, depending on, 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 the, on the case by case basis. Now, in, in the get out of jail free card of that guidance document, and this has been in existence for a long time, well before COVID, the get out of jail free card is that the guidance document does not apply to gene therapy, gene, gene therapy products that are for vaccines for infectious diseases. So on the one hand, you know, it falls under the biological definition, but for some reason, many years ago, FDA decided to exclude, exclude um, vaccines from, from that consideration. Here's the, here's the problem though, Kelly. Uh, we have many examples in, in, in medical products where, where a product might sort of fall under two different categories. It doesn't, you don't have to make a decision that it has to go only under one or only under the other. Uh, you can regulate the product as if it was both kinds of categories in certain ways by bringing in the different sections of the FDA that are responsible for those different types of uh, submissions. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Kelly, this is such a new product. We have no, as Dr. Baller, Albert Baller, the president of, C, of uh, Pfizer, said in an interview earlier this year, he said, you know, that no, no mRNA product had come onto the market uh, prior to this. this. This was totally counterintuitive uh, to, to, uh, to, to even to think about this when, when they first started developing this. But here's the, here's the rub. FDA actually have, under Peter Marks, a whole section within them of uh, gene therapy and, and, and tissue therapy uh, professionals, or scientists and so on, who review these sorts of uh, uh, submissions. And, those, and their work includes work on influenza gene therapy vaccines. Okay, so, so you can't have your cake and eat it, Kelly. You can't say, well, we're excluding it from gene therapy, when in fact, the FDA themselves are doing research on influenza gene therapies. Um, and, and as you probably know, it was announced um, just a few weeks ago that Pfizer had begun clinical studies for a combination flu vaccine, uh, mRNA version of flu vaccine and, and the COVID vaccine in, in, one, in one product. So, so, so there's such a lot of cross, crossover here. There's absolutely no reason why they, they shouldn't have been um, uh, publicly consulted. And that's the problem. They have not been publicly consulted. We don't know whether they've been privately consulted. But the main difference is, is, is in the length of the follow-up and the types of studies that are done. And if you look at the regulatory documents, time and time and time again, Pfizer will say, this type of study is not needed because generally it's not needed for vaccines. This type of study, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and FDA haven't followed through. Even, even if it was true that it's not necessary for normal kinds of vaccines, these are, these are without question gene therapies, absolutely no question. And people need to understand that. Well, and let's, let's talk about just even with vaccines, David, you know, there's a reason why the average vaccine takes eight to 10 years to come to market if it ever comes to market at all, because these sorts of studies take a long time. These, these, right. you know, whether you want to call them the COVID shots were never tested on huge groups of people. They were never tested on pregnant or lactating women. They were never tested on children. They were never tested on people with underlying autoimmune diseases. They were never tested on people who'd had and recovered from COVID. Uh, those things take a long time. Uh, furthermore, I have summarized in my uh, more rudimentary understanding of of gene therapies, the three, what I call the three greatest uh, falsehoods we were told about these mRNA shots, which is number one, we were told that they would stay in the deltoid muscle where they were injected. Number two, 
We were told that you would eliminate the mRNA very quickly from your body. Still, as of today, it's on the CDC website that you will eliminate it in a, quote, matter of days. And number three, we were told that no way, no how could it actually make it into the actual uh, DNA, that it could not be incorporated and would not change. Your- we know that all three of those things are not true. You right. mentioned Dr. Marks. That the F- Let's start talking at a little more granular level. And, and you can get into the weeds a bit on this. I just rattled off the t- what I call the top three uh, <laughs> lies or, or inaccuracies we were told about mRNA. Uh, let's get into that a little bit. What, from your perspective, what are the things that they know, uh, knew then, maybe, uh, maybe didn't know then, but sure as heck know now, you know, what have you discovered in these FOIA requests and things that were not made public, uh, without, you know, kicking and screaming, uh, what do we know now about this MRNA? Okay. I mean, some of the things actually are hidden in plain sight, Kelly, they're not, they're not, not everything had to be discerned from a, a FOIA request. But but the, fir- the first thing to understand is that we were told this is mRNA. Okay, in the in the FDA's documents before a FOIA, they, they, they use the term nucleoside modified RNA. Okay, okay, so that's the that's the usual uh, terminology that everyone's seeing on the screen there. But but the FDA use a different term called mod, M-O-D, RNA, modified RNA. And what that means is, is several things. First of all, there in the genetic code, there are four letters that make up the words of the genetic code. In RNA terms, there are um, G, C, A, and U. Okay, it doesn't matter what they mean. But the U, the the U thing, the U chemical has been changed to its uridine has been changed to something called pseudo uridine. Okay, and and it's put been put there for a reason. It's been put there to increase the stability and reduce the uh, the the um, the attack by the immune system on this foreign RNA. So, so the pseudourinine is put there. Dr. Sahin, in his, one of his papers, the founder of BioNTech, in 2014, wrote, wrote a big review article where he said, you know, repeated use of this thing and the pseudourinine could be, could be toxic in, in various ways. So that's the first thing about the, the, the mRNA. It's been modified. Second of, the, second of all, people don't realize you've been told this is the instructions that, that copy the instructions that the virus uses to make its own spike protein and set our body is now coerced into producing producing this. Um, that, that, um, that gene sequence in the vaccine contains two human gene sequences, okay? Human gene sequences, and they've been put there for certain reasons. And, and, and if I, I'm not sure if I have one of the slides there, but there's a WHO, World Health Organization guidelines that say, Manufacturers have to account for every part of the of the gene sequence. What is what is it there? What is the, what is the sequence? What are the particular subsequences? And what what are they doing there? And what 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 is their purpose? So we don't know any of that. In fact, we don't even know officially what the sequence is. And that's that's a that's a big hole. So so that's that's the that's the first thing. Um, the the second thing to note is that is that. Um, is is in terms of where does it where does this stuff go? Any drug, as you well know, any drug that goes onto the market, that one of the fundamental questions that has to be known is when you give the drug by by mouth, by injection, whatever, uh, the, the manufacturer has to be able to tell the FDA and the public exactly where does that drug go in the body, how long does it take to get there, how long does it stay there, and how long does it take to get out of the body, or if it's metabolized, if it's broken down into some breakdown products. 
Okay, we don't know what that is for the spike protein. And as you said, that one of the the things on the CDC website, it said it was only going to be around for a short amount of time. Um, this question was asked by a panel member, um, Dr. Portnoy, to Pfizer on June the fifteenth, I think it was this year, and he he asked him to you know say where where does this stuff go? How long is it? You know how long is it? Uh, does it uh, does the pro production of the spike protein persist for? And the answer that that, that was given by the Pfizer um, gentleman uh, was that this is an this is very nice to know. We don't really fully understand the mechanism of action of these vaccines, and it's an academic question. Okay, uh, I mean that is absolutely an astounding admission on the part of Pfizer of, of something that is so fundamental. If you don't know where this is going in your body, how long is it going for, and when does it eliminate, you shouldn't you shouldn't be using it. And we know that this does go in many places. Now we know from FOIA requests that the, the lipid nanoparticles go in, in all over the body. They accumulate in a number of places, including the ovary. Okay, and 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 and, and there's expression of the gene for a long time. We know that now from other studies that have been published up to 60 days. The Roltgen paper, uh, I think, uh, about a year ago, roughly early early this year, perhaps uh, up to 60 days. And, and we're finding evidence that this spike protein remains around for a long, long time. Uh, we, we know another paper just came out recently that there's other modifications that happen inside the cell to the mRNA that, uh, that allow it to stay around for much longer. So there's so much we don't know about this. This is the sort of stuff that would take 10 years to do. And, and, and the Pfizer um, head of R&D, vaccine R&D, who recently retired, Dr. Jensen, not to be confused with the the Janssen division of Johnson & Johnson, uh, she uh, was quoted in an interview recently in Nature magazine of saying, you know, we built the airplane, while we, we flew the airplane while we were building it. Okay, we condensed 10 years of work into nine months. Uh, you know, that, that was bragging. Are you proud of that? You, look what you've missed. You've missed all these <laughs> studies. You haven't reported. Where does it go? How long does it go there for? These are such fundamental studies. And to just dismiss them as being academic I think I think is beyond a level so of arrogance. I have a quite question. Frankly. I have a question. So so this thing's been given. Uh, we're going to look at the slides in just a second. But this vaccine's been given billions of times. Would that be a reasonable estimate? At least yes, at least a billion. Uh, and you had said that you thought the, at least in the younger population, the adverse event versus benefit was around twenty to one. Right? Am I? Did I get that right? It could be more than yeah, yeah. Could be more. Yes. Uh, now, so this thing was developed under extraordinary conditions, right? Uh, and uh, we all get that. And they took extraordinary risk, and they maybe took too much risk, and maybe too much went on. My, my question is sort of, again, this sort of a philosophical question. It's still up around thirty thousand feet with Doctor Doctor Kelly. Why forge on with the same? Uh, intensity? Why roll on with this thing? Now, on one hand, people are starting to blame some of the excess mortality and some of the weird, you know, psychi uh, uh, oncological and um, uh, vascular problems we're seeing. It's starting to get blamed on COVID, right? People are saying, no, it's not the vaccine, it's COVID. And that, again, because the relative risk stuff is still in question, I don't think that's been answered yet. But certainly, wouldn't you expect that if it had been given billions of times, we would see even more problems than we're seeing? I mean, why are we seeing as few? You, you, you know, on one hand, it's, a, it's good news. We're seeing relatively few. Let's say, let's say 
the excess mortality is caused by the vaccine. Uh, you would cause some prudence. Let's be careful. Let's roll this back. Let's not forge on the way they've been forging on. My question really is, why do they forge on with such uh, hubris? Well, I, I think, you know, you, you said it a moment ago. Is it, are we not seeing X, Y, Z? Well, the, the thing is, a number of us are seeing signals. And again, it's, I, I just want to be really careful here. Um, as a scientist, we, we, you know, we have to distinguish a signal that says, okay, there's something here versus proving it actually, you know, is the cause of something. But, but having a signal in a, an experimental product, which is th what this is, is important. And, we, and we're obliged intellectually and morally and everything else to say there's a signal, we have to stop and take a deep breath and look at it. So that's the first thing. But, but whenever people have brought up these so-called signals, that they haven't been able to publish them. They've been deplatformed. Look at that little note that comes up at the bottom of the screen. If I mention a certain and word, why is you, that? You know, what, what what is going on? Uh, what is indeed? I I I you. I would like to ask you that question. Here, look, there we go. <laughs> well, and, and as I said, as I said, the CDC say, says it's safe and effective. No, no, it's not correct. The CDC. The CD, the, the FDA have not determined this is safe and effective. They've determined this may be effective. That is, a, that is an incorrect statement. So right there, you, right there, that's a problem. You are being forced to put that language on the bottom of your screen when it is incorrect. FDA have not determined this to be safe and effective. All they have done is determined that it meets the standard of may be effective. That's it. And so anyone and who the comes out has a problem. The reason I the reason I was quoting from the CDC's own website with regard to their 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 words not mine their pledge to the American people number one is to base all public health decisions on the highest quality research conducted openly and and made uh, made transparent this is on that's their pledge and clearly they haven't done this so although Please, drew you may be right that early on uh, there was panic about it even if i was willing to be to give them that early on there was panic and early on they didn't know there were safe and effective treatments so early on we thought everybody was going to die so early on we could do okay now fast forward it's now december of 2022 it is absolutely mm -hmm. unconscionable it's inexcusable that the organization that states that they're pledge to the American people is to base their decisions on the highest quality research is refusing to look at what David is calling the signals. You're, you're correct. We can't say with surety that any particular increase in mortality or increase in a particular class of, of medical issues is directly a result of the vaccines. We can get into, as you know, you know Ryan Cole has indicated he could tell the difference between spike protein in tissue, spike protein that occurred from the virus versus spike right. protein that occurred from the vaccine. Right. So, so right. I'm not right. so sure that we we can't actually prove, uh, you know, if it was the vaccine or the virus. But what you and I have said, Drew, over and over again, is the CDC and the FDA are obligated, based on their public health mandate, to be not just investigating, but really in putting all of their resources towards looking at these things. Yeah. And that well, is as what well, as opposed to all their resources towards rolling on with this thing. Okay, right. so let me give you a couple of example a couple of examples. First first of all, um, you know, I've caught and I've documented this, you know, one of the things that I've been doing for the last year or so is 
attending virtually these various FDA and CDC meetings and writing written comments to them. So there's a list of those on, on the trial site, uh, my trial site page and my Synechion page of, of what they are. Anyone can access them. But um, so, for example, uh, I feel that the committees have been manipulated in some cases. They haven't been given the whole story. Dr. Paul Offit okay. has sort of said something okay. sort of similar. But uh, I remember back in um, January, February, when they were considering, uh, what was it, boosters for 12-year-old or something like that, and they had a review of the data, and the data had an artificial cutoff of December the 12th or something, um, and, and only data before that was was considered. They didn't consider what was going on in Omicron, which they knew full well about, where the, where the efficacy was was tanking. And and they set this arbitrary cutoff to, to not show those data to, to the panel members. And, I, and there was a couple of other incidents, incidents, incidents of that uh, also. So, so as to the, you know, conducting science at the highest level, uh, that's one example. Secondly, the, 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 the signal detection, um, you, you know, there, there's various methods of, of detecting signals mathematically. Again, they're signals, they're not, you know, proofs, but they're signals, um, is that they were supposed to have done something called a PRR analysis. It doesn't matter what that means, um, but they didn't do it. And, and an FOI request was was made, and they said they didn't do it, and then they said they did, they didn't. I'm not sure where they are at this point. But I did it along with uh, co-collaborated co, uh, uh, Dr. Getzko. We did it back in, in uh, September, October of last year. And we were showing signals for a number of things, heart attacks, blood clots, uh, all sorts of things, okay, using their methodology and using an improved methodology. Uh, FDA have now published F between FDA, CDC, and NIH, hidden in plain sight. There are several papers, Day, Harpaz, Lloyd, other papers uh, coming out where they, they put some signal analysis of various kind, Wang, H-U-A-N-G. They have a website. You can go and do a calculation on the website. And there's signals that are clearly there, okay, and, and why aren't they being followed up on? The, the React 19 group, who I just spoke with just before I came on, had a meeting today with, with, with Dr. Peter Martz, who, who still says, well, you know, we still like to talk to you, but we can't see any signals. We don't know what they're looking at. They won't share the analyses with us, okay, because everyone else is seeing signals. Why aren't you, okay? And, 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 and that has been the tremendous frustration. We're writing these things. I'm writing them to, to the CDC, FDA. They don't want to talk to us. They don't want to. We get three minutes if we're lucky. Uh, uh, one of these meetings, right. and that's it. Right, and, and I, you know, Drew used the word hubris, and that is precisely the, the correct word in my mind. The follow-up question that was asked by Dr. Portnoy, if I'm uh, correct in that uh, FDA panel that you were talking about, was he asked specifically, has anyone looked at, you're giving this mRNA shot with the intention of giving people's body the blueprint or the direction manual to start creating spike proteins. Have you looked at exactly which tissues in the body will start to produce those spike proteins for how long they will do it and what That's amount, what, how, how much spike protein? And the woman who answered the question, the same that we, we built the plane while we were flying it, that, that yeah, she yeah. reacted, she was so dismissive in her answer, she essentially said, well, we, a lot, it's making a lot. And, and no, we never it, looked, we, we can't tell you exactly how much, but it's a lot and acted as yeah. if, and then walked off the stage. It's this yeah, dismissiveness yeah. rather than saying, that's an excellent question. 
and something that we yeah. are obligated to look at. And here's our plan to instead, it's quite the opposite in my mind, David. They they are not only not looking at the signals, they are trying very hard to dismiss them. And I find right, that right. really, yeah. really problematic. Plus we 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 mentioned uh, also there are fragments of protein, they're improperly folded protein. And maybe David, we can get into this, we should get into this story about yes. The different yep. kinds of spike protein, yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, so that, can, that's where I'm I was going to take it. Just to five, six, or seven. Well, can you can you get up on the screen there? Yes, I'm pulling it up. Um, so uh, just to preface this, so so I think uh, a message that everyone needs to understand is that your body is being coerced, hijacked. That's the purpose of these. Oh, I keep that one on the screen, will you? I wanted oh, you got to look at this slide. Your your body your body is being hijacked by these vaccines to to produce vaccine to produce proteins it doesn't normally produce and that has consequences and the, and, and and we don't know exactly where in the body but it's multiple places the lipid nanoparticles are designed to go everywhere your body is not designed to produce proteins that it is not normally producing and that can render them susceptible to attack to um you know by an autoimmune processes other kinds of processes. And that's that's the key thing. And it's doing it in an uncontrolled, undefined way, because according to Pfizer, it's an academic question. By the way, Moderna asked us, answered a similar type of question slightly more respectfully. They still didn't give a very good answer, but it was it didn't it didn't have the same uh, timbre as, as, as the Pfizer answer. But anyway, this slide here, um, you know, we were talking about the erosion of FDA, uh, you know, standards. Um, this 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 puts a, a, a lump in my throat every time I see it. This was um, an efficacy analysis to support the five to eleven year old Pfizer uh, application in uh, October twenty twenty one, and and uh, if this is FDA's review of the data. The important part on this slide is that little red box on the bottom. The red is mine, but the black writing is is original to the slide, and it says analyses not verified by the FDA. This was the fundamental uh, efficacy analysis that that was used to justify a 90-something percent um, uh, efficacy in 5 to 11-year-old children. And a fundamental job of FDA before it starts going into any weeds whatsoever is just to make sure the numbers add up properly. And some reason, the, the red circles have just gotten dislocated on your screen there. But but the the numbers of, of, of COVID cases were three in the vaccine group and 16 in the in the um, in the uh, placebo group, this is a fundamental job of FDA. They just have to add up, make sure the numbers add up properly. And it wasn't just this slide; they did it on a, Jan a whole set of Janssen analyses and on uh, some Moderna analyses, and then even in Molnupiravir uh, in a different uh, context, in, in a COVID context. This is a fundamental problem. If FDA aren't even checking that the numbers add up correctly, you know we can we can theorize about fo protein folding. That's way more, way way more complicated. You only have to be wrong by a little bit to make those numbers three and sixteen, which are hidden by the red circles right now, uh, to to make them wrong, and it would change your calculation entirely. So that's that. This is a really really important slide. People need to see, and there's more like it. If you go to the one about the spike protein, uh, Caleb, um, keep going, keep going. Okay, this one. Okay, so this is this is really important. Yeah, we're now talking about the bivalent vaccines. Bivalent means two. B I bi means two. Okay, and the idea here was that, that that these new updated vaccines would have a little bit of the original Wuhan uh, strain from the original uh, version of the vaccine, and they would have a Omicron strain mixed in with it, which is the BA4 slash five strain. 
and and so uh, according to you know the the, the, the story um, we, we should be expect to see two types of spike proteins so we've got the blue one on the left we'll call that the Wuhan one and we've got the completely brown one on the right which is the omicron one now in reality these spike proteins are made up of three components it's like three legs of a of a of a legs of a of a, of a stool okay the three the, the stool has three legs and they're all identical when when each leg gets produced by you know the result of the mrna the three legs self assemble and they form this three three in one spike protein and what uh, moderna revealed at the uh, the cdc meeting in september was that since they load the mrnas for the two kinds the omicron and the wuhan in the same a lipid nanoparticle, the same little fat bubble that is used to deliver this all around the body, any, any given cell could receive two the two kinds of mRNAs at one time, and they could produce legs of each kind. They can produce the Wuhan leg or a Omicron leg. And when there are three of them, regardless of what type they are, they can assemble. So you can actually get potentially four kinds of st stools produced. You can get the all, all Wuhan type, all, all Omicron type, or you can have two Omicron and one Wuhan, or or one of two, one and two, and the other way around. That means there are four different kinds of spike proteins that are produced, and so to call this a bivalent vaccine is potentially incorrect. They're doing it, they say, because this actually leads to a better immunological effect. There's a better there's the, this new molecules do something that is not expected by having the, the the old way of doing it. Anytime you change a single atom in a drug. You change its chemistry. You change its pharmacology, its its drug action. You potentially change its toxicology. And so, so, so to grandfather these things in, extrapolating from earlier uh, um, data is completely ridiculous. You have new new pharmacology here. So I can I can. How tell did you, they? Kelly, how did they document? I have a question. How did they document a better effect? That means somehow they must have been able to have a cohort that had the two pure strains without the two mixed strains right, right. and compare it against the pure and mixed strains i doubt they did that i doubt they could even do it let alone did it and so on what basis do they claim what basis they how do they claim better immunological effect that to me that's a smoking gun man that is that is outrageous i think what they did i think what they might have done was they 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 would have done animal studies number one and number two they can look at they can look at different antibody binding profiles as well and and from those things they it certainly was not in a human clinical study that's for sure that is for sure there's no human clinical studies for this it's only mice or or, or test tubes okay okay but but nonetheless they they they've made the claim this is there these words in the yellow box there this actually leads to more open uh, confirmation that should be with an o i'm sorry I misspelt that and exposure like of additional, like additional antibodies. so they're saying they're saying that this is new pharmacology okay so I'm saying new pharmacology means new toxicology. As of about two hours ago, the React 19 group met with the FDA. They met with Peter Marks, and they asked him, are you aware that this could happen? And basically he said yes. And, and are you aware that this could lead to new toxicology? He sort of tried to back down apparently and say, well, uh, well just because there's a different antigenic response, it doesn't mean that the safety profile is different. Well, I have, I have a really hard time in knowing how he knows that. And they so FDA. If you're listening, and I hope you are, you need to explain exactly what you said to 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 Bree Dressen and Joel Walscog about two hours ago, uh, uh, this afternoon, and show what studies did you do to show that that that, that there's no no effect of the safety of these things. 
He couldn't even tell you whether there's two, three or four of these things. I'd have to defer to someone. Why don't you know this? You've just authorized these bivalent vaccines for millions of children, or millions of people all the way down to six months, and you don't know the answer to this question? That should be on the top of your head. Okay, and then what happens and, and in Pfizer? Actually, we don't what, what I was going to say here, David, and I, th I, th I think what's so important for people to understand is that saying what you're saying doesn't make you anti-vaccine. What it makes you is pro-safety and pro-data. The, they don't know because they didn't do the studies. There was not a single human study done on the bivalent vaccines, which I now think we should be calling quadrivalent, uh, based on just what you are saying right here. Kelly, Kelly, Kelly. So, so Drew asked a question just before we came on the show, and he was talking about enantiomers and so on. I had to think about that, mm -hmm. and and uh, and I've got an answer for you, Drew. If you're still if you're still there, um, I think they're I'm actually here and interested. More in okay, so so yeah. you so the question the question that Drew uh, asked was, you know, you have this thing called um, stereoisomers. Okay, I, I'm not going to try and explain what that means, but 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 <laughs> Drew knows what it means. Okay, so mirror that images, that mirror, mirror images. Mirror, mirror images. Thank you. That's a good, a good way of saying it. So, so um, I'm going to put this out there. Someone, uh, someone needs to get back to us and try and figure this out. But there is, a, there is a potential source of that, and that is as follows: in the spike protein that occurs in the in the virus, you've got the three the three legged uh, spike protein. One of those legs pops up the receptor binding domain. Okay, so not all three pop up their receptor binding domain. Only one of them does. If that's the case, mm. then I suppose you could have a situation, even in, let's say, the two-to-one version, the blue-brown thing that I just showed you a moment ago, you could have a situation that where you've got two versions of that, where the receptor binding yeah. domain is on the blue one or on the brown one. I'd like to, I'd like to get some clarity on that. But so I think you yeah, may have a total – listen, you heard we, you, we know you from – and you heard it here, and, and you know from drug research that that this that's how this goes. Like one one in one chimeric response can be completely different, particularly when it comes to the immune system. the bottom line is this: if you are interested in being a subject in a drug experiment or a medical experiment of any sort, God love you. I but you should know that that's what you're doing. Uh, anybody who's yeah. getting these vaccines is that's a fine. subject in an ongoing experiment. And that and that's my point is I have no, um, mm. you know, no problems if that's what you want to do. But it should be made clear. And the idea that they keep saying these are safe and effective when, in fact, you are a subject in an ongoing experiment, the results of which are nowhere near known at this point, because we don't know about what the potential oncologic, the, the carcinogenic uh, impact of these may be. And one of the things that concerns me very much is the potential for autoimmune issues related to these, because uh, as we've been pointing out, when every different cell in your body starts producing these spike proteins, and we know that those are the, what's toxic, we know that those are what uh, starts off the, the, uh, the production of antibodies, you, those antibodies are then going to attack any cell in your body that is creating this toxic protein. It will attack the heart muscle, lung tissue, kidney tissue, the insides of blood vessels, and on and on and on. So we, we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to get, David, um, to some of these signals that you are seeing 
specifically with regard to not only the myocarditis, but the cancer issues and, and give you some time to talk about what we're seeing with all-cause mortality and what these numbers that are potentially, again, not, not conclusively, but potentially related uh, to these vaccines. Okay, so I think in the second slide, it's a blue and yellow slide, Caleb, if you, if you can find that one. Yes, I'm going to jump around. So, so, so the big the big problem with all the data that you've seen is is that, you know, attributing COVID deaths. So did the person die because of COVID or they happen to have COVID and so on? And and so uh, one of the sort of it go right right at the beginning, right at the beginning, uh, it's like second or third slide. Well, hang on. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. So so. Um, so one of the ways around that is to look at all-cause mortality. I just want to show you this slide. This is a CDC slide, and it's extremely poor quality, not because of my computer, because that's how the slide came. And you can see very faint uh, blue line, which is pointed to by the red uh, and my my red arrow, is that this is the efficacy. And by uh, seven months, the efficacy against Omicron goes to less than zero. In the tiny little words on the right side, uh, the CDC have said that by three months, the the the, um, the 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 effect of the, of the of the thing is is indistinguishable from zero. But the problem is that once it gets to negative efficacy territory, that means a person has a greater risk of getting COVID than if they didn't have the vaccine. Why is that? Is this evidence of immunological harm? And that's the problem. And these and these negative efficacy estimates are coming up by lot from lots of places, not just CDC. We saw it even very early on, a year and a half ago, from Danish data and many other places. Okay, and so there's evidence of immunological harm that has to be addressed. So on the next slide, if you could show that, please. Um, this is a very one. I think one of the finest analyses that anyone's done in the whole pandemic, done by uh, Dr. Herve Seligman in Luxembourg. He updates this all the time. Um, and and uh, on the left or uh, lower panel, what he's doing, he's looking at uh, correlations between uh, percentage vaccination in 23 European countries with all-cause mortality. And the, um, the yellow area indicates that there is a, neg a negative correlation, meaning, meaning that there is a detriment associated with, with the more vaccination that happens. This is the interesting part. You actually get, um, so there's a, I think from zero to about six weeks of the yellow portion. Um, I, I can't move, I can move my thing here. Yeah, there's a little yellow portion from about six weeks. So there's a de detriment at, up to about six weeks, followed by a blue portion, which suggests actually an overall benefit. But that's quickly after about tw 20 weeks is, is uh, changes to a detriment again. That lasts for another 20 or so weeks. And, th and then it becomes very noisy because of, of the lack of data. I'm not going to try and explain that statistically. But this, is, this has been a consistent pattern in Hervey's data. He was one of the first people to do this. But other people have done other types of all-cause mortality analyses. Ed Dowd looking at you know, uh, insurance and uh, sort of financial, you know, uh, type of data. Other people have done this sorts of these sorts of things. And we're seeing this as a, as a concern. Uh, we see a similar thing with booster doses, time from booster intervals. And there you see that yellow period at the top, which extends for a very long time, which, 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 which indicates a potential detriment. So this is a concern that has to be addressed. Next slide, please. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to skip that. Keep going. Let's not. Let's go, go, go. We, okay, this is Peter Marks basically now saying he's the head of the biologic section of the FDA. Look at that bottom red uh, section there. He has just said <clears throat> a few days ago in the Journal of Medical, Medical Association that continuing on the path 
of these uh, of, of making these uh, new variant vaccine boosters is inadequate as a long-term strategy. So, so basically, he realizes that the game's up at this point. Okay, we cannot keep trying to boost ourselves out of this uh, with these new variant vaccines. And I've used the term uh, to try and explain it to people. This is the immunological equivalent of heroin addiction. Um, if you go to the next slide, please. Actually, a couple of uh, uh, well, you've seen that one. Keep going, and seen that one. Keep going, and then they, and again, and we talked about cell therapy and the, and the and the division within the FDA. We've talked about that already. Keep going, and we've talked about this one. <laughs> keep going, and let's talk about cancers. Okay, and one of the concerns. I think this is the last slide. One of the concerns uh, based on the gene therapy considerations is that because these 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 mRNA can interfere in various ways with 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 genes. Okay, does it does it give rise to cancer? And there are a number of plausible mechanisms that the spike protein can interfere with DNA repair mechanisms. We've seen in a paper by Alden, I think it is, that we can get reverse transcription. That means that the RNA can turn into DNA and it can locate into the nucleus. Okay, we've um, th there's 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 a paper from NIH uh, saying that. In the in the in the in the in the virus itself, uh, the mRNA and and the spike can lo locate into the nucleus. There are photographs called immunofluorescence photographs from Pfizer that which suggests that this can happen. And so, uh, but many of my medical colleagues have been sort of say, well, we're not really sure about these cancer signals. We would expect them to occur much more quickly. So this is a a, a look in VAERS. I did this the other day. Just Dr. Jessica Rose, who I regard as one of the leaders in this, the leader in this field, uh, sort of verified my numbers. She got slightly different numbers, but they were very close. And and these are the number of events reported into VAERS. Now, just to stress to everyone, we're not implying causality. This is just looking at a potential signal. But we see 3,100 events uh, in COVID vaccines reported in the last uh, two years. And all other vaccines for all other years going into VAERS, going back to 1990, only has 20, just under 2,100. Uh, if we look in, a, in the free text field, those numbers are even in, even bigger, 11,000 versus 3,600. Anyone can, if they can look at those uh, URLs at the bottom, they can do, you can look at the same search that I did. But, but this is clearly showing that there is a potential signal. Okay, One way or the other, this has to be addressed. It has to be done openly. Everything that we've talked about today, this has to be done openly. The data has to be made freely available. We shouldn't have to go to court and get an FOI request that's going to take months and months. The data have to be provided by FDA. They have to be open to scrutiny by everyone. And this is this is a potential thing that is going to haunt the, 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 the country, the world, potentially for a long time. We have to grapple with it. And just, just to be clear, what you're saying here, in case anybody missed that, the number of cancers that are reported potentially associated with the COVID vaccines are 50% higher than the sum of more than 40 years of data of all other vaccines combined. 30, yeah. Yeah, 30, yeah. 32 okay. years. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, 30, yeah. 30 yeah. 32 years. I'm yeah. sorry. 32 years, all other vaccines combined uh, does not add up to what we're seeing from VAERS. Yeah. So again, when you talk yeah. about signals, and I would say that the, the one um, mechanism that you didn't mention with regard to how these vaccines may be associated with new cancers or resurgence of previously uh, uh, cancers that were previously in remission is simply the immunosuppressive effect. We know that these vaccines do cause suppression of the immune system overall, and the immune system is fundamentally the first line of defense 
against cancers. Uh, it is supposed to, you know, your immune system is what sees an aberrant cell and says that that doesn't look right and wipes it out before it ever takes hold. So I think that that is, uh, again, an additional uh, potential signal. So we're, we're running down the clock here. So I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, I could talk with you forever. Uh, I love I love chatting with you about all of this, but uh, take the last little bit. What what did we not cover that you um, think of you? That you would like to mention, uh, I, I think. I think uh, it back, goes back to Drew's one of his earlier questions. Uh, you know what happened here, and I think we have to look at the the role of the of the medical establishment and particularly the peer reviewed journals in 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 how they've not um, you know uh, corrected papers, how certain papers have been suppressed. FDA and CDC have used these papers to to and, and NIH for that matter to back up their positions. That the FDA have delegated the responsibility that they should have to analyze the data, and they've done so with without any oversight of these journals, without any accountability of those journals. And I think that's that's a huge problem. But to anyone who's listening here, um, you know, we we have to we have to recognize we're not. This is an exciting technology that, if properly deployed and properly tested could treat lots of diseases, could help lots of people, but it just it just is not the right time. We have to move on here. We have to think about repurposed drugs. As Peter Mark said, said just a moment ago over there, um, you know, we can't continue doing this. He's just saying everything that we've been saying for the last year or two, uh, but now it's official. So, um, so Peter Marks, we agree, finally. Yeah, yeah, I think we all agree, which is just calm, calm down, be careful think this through redeploy if it's appropriate but don't rush ahead with the abandoned and the right. and the hubris that they've been doing so it 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 sort of it makes it, it makes the theories of such as Robert Kennedy start to hold water because then you think well why are they doing this is it that cozy relationship with with the uh, pharma I I don't know if any of that's true or not it just though they open themselves to that kind of criticism or, or at least scrutiny that, that maybe something like that is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Needlessly. And, and they're not behaving in, in ways that they normally do. Everyone behaved abnormally for three years and, right. and to see, you know, because this, this may be the tale now of all the insanity of the last three years, because they're a bureaucracy and bureaucracies are always the last to change. And that may be why they're taking so long. And I'm wondering if what Dr. Marks just said, was the the bellwether harbinger of what's about to come, which is okay. You've had enough vaccines, everybody. <laughs> Let, let's start working well, at therapeutics. Well, the, well, the, and the really keep it right. the really scary thing for me, Drew, and we've talked about it on, on previous shows, is the amount the undermining of confidence that people have yeah. now yeah. in these agencies, in our public health agencies. Yeah. You know, one of one of the people posted a you know a uh, comment, and I've said this over and over again. Uh, I fear that people will translate this into fear of all things vaccine, of all things public health. God yeah. help us when we try to sound the alarm bell uh, from a public health perspective and get people to follow our advice and and take heed and take action because your average person looks at public health and the CDC and the FDA and say says they're a bunch of cor either corrupt, inept, or both uh, individuals. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. why and Kelly, should we listen to them? Yeah, Kelly, I was during, while well, you, while well, I was off screen, I was interacting somewhat with our chatters and restreams and 
somebody on the Rumble said, you know, started claiming that cancers were up with the HPV vaccine. And I, I fought very hard to get that vaccine really rolled yes. out. And I and I pulled mm -hmm. up the CDC data that shows a nice steady decline in cervical cancer since the vaccine was actualized. And the response from the uh, the person on the on the tweet thread was, uh, you know, I don't trust any doctors or any data. And I was like, well, now we can't have you now we can't even talk. Now we can't even have a conversation. No. I pulled up some data. You want? I don't know what to do now. Uh, you know, I, I yes, I understand why you feel that way. But uh, what what do we do? Um, Gosh, there was another piece of this I was going to say. Well, keep keep going, guys. Let's kind of wrap up. There's there's another thing that's going to come to me in a second that was a corollary. Oh, I know what it was, which was here in Los Angeles, we were about to go under another mask mandate because we have a, a public health official who's not a physician, not a scientist, is some sort of sociologist, doesn't know how to make a risk-reward analysis. And God bless, one of the finally one of the county uh, board of supervisors stepped up and said, you know, if you keep doing this, first of all, they're not going to follow you. And secondly, when you, they need to follow you, they're not going to. They're not Because this is ridiculous. The only county on earth with a mask mandate, give me a break. And she backed down, amazingly. Right, right. Well, I, I think I think your point about people not trusting. I, I think the, the the market has spoken because if you look at the uh, CDC's own numbers about how many people who are eligible for the updated boosters, it's something like twelve or thirteen, fourteen percent, extremely low. Uh, and so, you know, you know, scientists and doctors can opine all day and use very long, fancy words. But at the end of the day, I think people are fed up of it. And Moderna's advert says, we're all sick of COVID. Yeah, we're damn sick of COVID. We're damn sick of all this, you know, and, and, and they're not right. taking these vaccines. And, and so I think the whole thing has backfired for lots of reasons. And, and we've got to have a really serious dis discussion. And, and people have got to like, okay, open up. And we, we've got to figure out how to do this better because it sure wasn't done well this time, but we've got to learn from our mistakes. I, well, what I, I am really I hopeful, I'm hopeful that we... That we, I, Drew, I am hopeful that going forward, um, people ask me frequently, you know, what happens after COVID. My goal is to address this exact issue with confidence in public health and in healthcare uh, professionals mm. going forward after COVID, and we, there will be an after COVID, I promise, is to continue to discuss openly and honestly with different uh, industry experts, whatever the issue is of the day, whether it has to do with cancer, whether it has to do with um, you know increase in violence uh, in schools, if it has to do with addiction or whatever it is, is to continue to use this platform in the way that we have to get beyond the censorship and the politicization uh, and the uh, the corruption that has occurred within these agencies and say, if nowhere else, you can find it here. You can find open, honest, you know, rigorous, robust debate amongst professionals and experts who are willing to listen to one another and have it out and entertain other ideas. Uh, because we sure have seen the shutdown of the uh, town town square during this pandemic, uh, and it's really been to our detriment. I told Kelly that back throughout my career, alternative, you know, far out opinions were always just called interesting. <laughs> I disagree. Here's why. And that's interesting. And instead of uh, dangerous or misinformation or God knows what, you know, I had a I had a situation this morning where, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I had a nuanced decision I had to make for a patient. I thought if I were just following an algorithm, I would I, I would not even be thinking about this stuff. I would not be thinking it all through on behalf of the patient, and that's the that's the the scary part of over reliance on evidence in medicine. But that's a 
issue for another day. Uh, Dr. Weissman, thank you so much for coming in today. We appreciate it. We enjoyed it. Again, we would have you back as the information continues to flow forward. Thank you. A pleasure. And an honor. Ple- pleasure was ours. And then, Kelly, you and I are back together. Uh, we have the uh, long COVID guys in tomorrow just to give us an update. We are right. next week with uh, Asim Malhotra. Is that next week? No, that's two, no, three no, we weeks out, three, right? No, we- we have Dr. Teresa Long, who is um, one of the three uh, military, quote, whistleblowers uh, who testified in front of Congress um, back uh, now over a year ago with regard to increases that they were seeing in the military of certain uh, classes of medical conditions. And, and interestingly, it was posting her sworn testimony that got me permanently kicked off Twitter. So so it'll be great to have well her done. on. Uh, Yes, uh, to have her on to talk about uh, her experience through this, which is not just, by the way, Drew, sharing uh, the data that she has from DMED, the Defense Military uh, Epidemiology Database, which she has access to, but also her experience of censorship and uh, and what has happened to her and her career in the military. And the next day, the 22nd, Kelly's going to come in here and help me with Steve Kirsch, who has been... uh, Yes, um, yes. An interesting source yep. of alternative information, the entire thing. And I thank him for the fluvoxamine, which helped me with my long COVID. Next week, Dr. Asim Malhotra, if you check out Dr. John Campbell's uh, little podcast today, he aired, it, it sort of substituted his podcast for the testimony in the uh, parliament today, uh, initiated by Dr. Malhotra to try to get uh, increase awareness about potential harms cardiologically. And uh, that that's far enough in advance. Uh, so I will be in here tomorrow with the long haul guys, Dr. Patterson and Dr. Yo. There they are to give us an update on what their research is showing them. And Kelly, as always, thank you so much. And uh, I'll see you next Wednesday. You'll see me Wednesday and Thursday next week. Thanks, Drew. Well, well done. And for the rest of you, Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 